0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their amazing stories of experience, strength, and hope. This is the 73rd interview in my AA Recovery Interviews podcast series and features my good friend, Dale C., Thirteen years ago, Dale started attending one of my home groups, a men's meeting that I've been going to for over 33 years. Since he first stepped into that meeting, his service to the group and individual men has solidified his spot in the middle of our herd. In fact, he says it was when he started making and serving coffee in the meeting that his life began getting better. Strong testimony from a man whose drinking was fueled by the adolescent trauma he suffered when he found his father's body immediately after he had committed suicide. Though he knew what he had seen, an ironclad family secret grew out of that tragic event, and he spent many years drinking to dull the pain. Like many of us, Dale managed to function with his escalating disease, finishing college and law school before launching a successful law practice. And though he might have noticed his own heavy drinking over the years, it was his wife's alcoholism that created the most strife in their family. But things got bad enough that she stopped drinking via AA 22 years before he did. Ironically, Dale accompanied his sober wife to many AA-related functions over the years and even got to know her AA friends and sponsor quite well. But despite his own worsening alcoholism, the attraction to A.A. didn't occur until late in his fifties, when the alcohol damage to his heart resulted in triple bypass surgery. While he didn't stop drinking immediately after the surgery, his looming bottom was clearly in sight. So, with his wife's help, Dale finally found A.A. and has been sober since then. Dale's story is remarkable in many ways, not the least of which is the impact that service work can have on the continued durability of one's sobriety. His solid practice of sponsoring other men while cultivating close personal relationships in AA has served Dale well. His daily prayer, readings, and meetings have both strengthened and enriched his program while providing a fine example of what it takes to stay in the protective middle of AA. I think you'll enjoy my interview with Dale and find it both informative and touching. So, lend us your ears for the next hour and five minutes while you enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my fine friend and AA brother, Dale C. My name's Dale. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Dale. Thanks for being on AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I really, I really appreciate it. This is kind of a remote podcast in a way because you and I are sitting here during the afternoon break of an AA men's retreat here at a retreat center in Houston. And we've had the opportunity to participate in meetings together while we've been here. But I knew I wanted to do an interview with you. This gives us the opportunity to do that and spend some time together. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know there are other things you could be doing.
1: Well, thanks for asking me.
0: Yeah. So what's special about this particular interview is that you are one of only a handful of interviews I've done where I interviewed one person of the marriage and then the other person, the spouse, at some point. And I interviewed your wife, Sue, and hers was a, was a really a great interview. But it's always interesting for me to hear both sides. You've been around AA since, what, what is your sobriety date? It's December 7th, 2008. December 7th, a day which will live in infamy. Everything exploded. Have you really been in 14 years? No, 13? 13 and a half, yeah. God, I remember when you came in. I remember when I heard your last name and I said, is that her husband?
1: Because I had gone to meetings with Sue. Yeah, she got sober in 1986. Right. And what a wonderful thing that was for our family. I mean, it was amazing how good everything got.
0: Yeah, she told me, you know, her story about her journey to get into AA was one that I could see that your family was at a real crossroads there towards the end of her drinking.
1: Yeah, I didn't know whether to divorce her or kill her. You know? <laughs> if I'd have killed her, I'd be out of prison by now. But <laughs> That's
0: terrible. <laughs> yeah, it is terrible. But You might decide you want that cut out later.
1: <laughs> that's right. She's, uh, you know, she has such a wonderful program and she sponsors so many women and, uh, has from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, had a wonderful sponsor herself. That was Martha, wasn't it? Martha,
0: W Martha was uh, is she still uh, is she still living, Martha?
1: No, Martha has passed, mm. and um, it, was, it was what a great gift when she passed, she was in a, a assisted living place, her roommate sent down a box of mementos from Martha that Martha wanted Sue to have.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And lots of old pictures and Martha's uh, first-year Zippo lighter that they used to give away.
0: Yeah, they used to give lighters on the first anniversary, that's didn't right. they? But uh, that's back during during smoking meetings. Yeah. Martha was a very no-nonsense type of member of AA. She was really big on the
1: traditions, too, wasn't she? She was. She always had... The traditions dinner, yeah, that uh, where they went through all the twelve traditions, and uh, Martha was real big on that, real big on service, mm-hmm. did a lot of conferences, and Martha was a circuit speaker and went around talking about recovery and uh,
0: so it's safe to say that you had a lot of exposure to aA well before you ever got here.
1: Oh, yeah, I used to go to birthday meetings when Sue would pick up another chip. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I love Martha. Martha was always so super sweet, but she was hard on Sue. Was she? (laughs) Yeah, but she was super sweet to me. We did a lot of work around her house and helped her hang drapes and put in a dog door. Yeah, and this is long before you got into the program yourself. That's right. So...
0: I can imagine how somebody was influenced by their exposure to AA to the degree that you were. Here's Sue, a very, very active member of her her groups and and a very active member. And I can imagine somebody might want to go into AA just so they could have something else to do with their wife or their husband. But your exposure to the program, how did that coincide with your drinking at the time?
1: Well, you know, everybody's progression is different. And I had drank, you know, moderately for many, many years. It was only, I guess, in the last, you know, five to ten years of my drinking that, that it accelerated. Hmm. But it accelerated at a pace that was, uh, I didn't notice it. Mm-hmm. I was denying it. I'm sure I was purposely putting it out of my mind and saying, no, I don't have this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we only have one alcoholic in our family and that's Sue. You know, When truly it was becoming a problem for me. So the fact that
0: Sue was the alcoholic became a good excuse for you not to be one. Right. Because you already had one. Right. During that time that, that, that you guys uh, were married that you were drinking to the extent that maybe you would have been the AA material, when she indeed was. What kind of feedback was she giving you about your drinking at the time? Or did she stay completely away from that?
1: Well, you know how the alcoholic hides. Yeah. You know, there were occasions when she would say, you you might want to take a look at your drinking. Mm. You know, and, and that would usually elicit a, oh, there's nothing wrong with my drinking. You know, I, I don't have a problem. You know, and then try to change the subject. How well did that work? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Sue's approach to it was to really to back off, you know, and to, I guess, eventually let me find my own bottom, yeah. which we all have to do. That's
0: amazing. Was she also working Al-Anon at the time? Was she involved with Al-Anon at all? A little bit. And how about you? Were you involved in Al-Anon when she was in AA? I was not. So your exposure to the 12-step programs was vicarious through Sue and her involvement. So she was a member of AA for 23 years before you came in. Yeah. When did you start drinking? How old were you when you had your first drink?
1: The uh, first drink I had uh, that I, what I consider a, a real sit-down-and-let's-get-drunk drink was when I was uh, almost 12 what did that scene look like? It was ugly. You know, the very first time I got drunk, I blacked out. It was about a month after my father had committed suicide. Oh, God. He was an alcoholic, and he had had a very difficult time trying to get sober. Uh, he was a physician. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days, in the uh, 1950s, there was a big stigma about alcoholism, and particularly among the medical community. So he would go down to the hospital to uh, get dried out and then he would come back and then he would, you know, go on the wagon for a while and then Mm -hmm. then he would drink again. And I mean, he had horrific um, accidents, car accidents and lost his driver's license. And those were in the days when uh, pediatricians, which he was, would make house calls uh-huh. and so he would go out and I remember one time coming home he he was drunk and, and ran off the road and ran down a ravine into a creek and broke his leg, broke his jaw you know, and they brought him home that night and took him to the hospital. you know the police didn't arrest him then yeah. but eventually they did and he you know he lost his license and you know had difficulties you know couldn't drive for a year. But he was still allowed to practice medicine. Still allowed to practice medicine and uh, my mother would drive him around to house calls. Now do you have siblings? I do. I have, uh, I had three brothers, one of them passed away and a sister. So you were exposed to your dad's alcoholism from the time you were a little kid? Oh yeah. What was that like growing up in that environment? Well, if you've ever talked to, and I haven't been involved in ACA, but If you ever talk to somebody, a child of an alcoholic, you know, when you come home, you don't know what you're going to find. You know, you don't know if if it's going to be chaotic or if it's going to be peaceful.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You don't want to bring your friends home. Mm -hmm. You're embarrassed about, you know, the fact that your father's an alcoholic. You know he's got a problem. And you make fun of him and you... You know, you ridicule him behind his back, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a sad deal. And that was going on from the time you were a little kid until
0: you actually took your first drink. Right. What was your dad like when he was drunk? Was he rageful? Was he violent? Was he happy? Was he giddy? I mean, what was his demeanor?
1: He was very morose and uh, almost non- noncommunicative, Um no, there was not much interaction at all. God, that must have been really tough as a little kid. Yeah. And your mom, where was she through all of this? You know, they dealt with this stuff, you know, out of our eyesight uh-huh. and, and earsight. And I know they talked about it a lot. And I talked with my mother about it after he passed. And. You know, she said he just had a problem that he n- could never solve. Mm. You know, he was—he had depression. So they dealt with it, but not with the kids. Right, so whatever they were doing to deal with it, the kids were just
0: not involved. Not involved at all. So by the time he uh, ended his own life, you say you were 12 years old when that happened? Mm-hmm. What was the immediate aftermath of that
1: for you? Oh, it was horrible. It was, uh, we were able to stay in the same house but um, it, everything was really, I mean, the finances were tough. Mm. You know, because my mother was a school teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, she went back to work, got her master's degree, became a librarian, and um, so th- through my teenage years, we were pretty much, I mean, she was doing her best to make a living and keep food on the table, and we were kind of running loose. Mm. But it was, it was a close family. I was really close with my mother. Mm-hmm and my brothers and my sister at the time. But the way my sister reacted to it all is shortly after our father passed, she got married like at 17. Mm. So she was escaping. And then my older brother, he escaped into books. You know, he was real smart, and, but but he was also an alcoholic. He developed into an alcoholic, as did my twin brother. Mm who's still practicing. He's still practicing.
0: Yeah, and my younger brother. And your younger brother. So you're the only one amongst the siblings to get sober? That's it. So when your dad uh, committed suicide, did you know that that's what he had done at at 12? What what were you being told about that at the time?
1: We were told it was an accident, but putting two and two together, there was no counseling about that. Mm. There was really not much discussion about it, Mm -hmm. but we knew we knew what had happened, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, my brother and I were the ones that found him. And oh, jeez. He had a twenty two rifle that he used to kill himself with. Yeah, it was, That must have been traumatic for you as a kid. It was, and it was, it was one of the resentments that I carried until I got sober, until I was 59. So, you know, you can get from 12 to 59, you carry this resentment. Where was his willpower? Where was his, you know? Yeah. He abandoned us, you know. It was, you know. He was weak, you know, all of that stuff.
0: So how did all that stuff that you've uh, reconsidered once you had gotten into the program and started working the steps, how did that play out from the time you were 12 onward in the subsequent years to your father's death?
1: I reacted to it by, by not talking about it, not telling people about it, you know, avoiding it. Mm-hmm. You know, if people would bring it up, I would say, oh, it was an accident, you know, the story that I was told. Because I was embarrassed about that. But you knew it wasn't an accident, but you had to keep the family story. It was a secret, family secret. But when I got sober, I was able to see that I was just like him. Mm -hmm. He was 47 years old when he killed himself. And uh, I remember when I was 47, going, well, I made it, you know, I made it past 47. But then when I got sober and I started, and this was big on my... Uh, resentment list, you know, I started to see that it was possible to let that go, that this was one of those resentments that, although I didn't have a a direct part in it, mm-hmm. you know, I had a part because I had held on to that. Mm. And so I was able to forgive him. I was able to say, you know what, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, I could be, I could be you, you know, I could have killed myself. So this is a traumatic experience that happens at
0: twelve. Can you walk us down the path a little bit from twelve onward? Let's say through your high, school, junior high, and high school years with regard to drinking and your behavior.
1: Yeah, you know, in high school it was it was all beer, all beer, and mm-hmm. every now and then it it got into the hard stuff. You know, we we had a friend that whose parents went out of town a lot, and so we would gather up over there and drink. And, or dates over there, you know, it was... We were the crowd that, you know, that you could go and find and and find a drinking party, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we drank a lot, you know. We had older guys that were part of the group that could buy us whiskey and and beer, and, and so we would have kegs and... and uh, but it was just weekend-type stuff. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, during school. I mean, it was... And that was before marijuana, you know, because I didn't really find marijuana until college. You know, And, know, and then it became, you know, after high school, it became a lot of different drugs. Yeah. It became psychedelic drugs. It became, you know, everything from LSD to mushrooms to peyote to... Always a lot of weed, mm. you know, and always, always liquor.
0: So, what was the crowd that you were hanging with in in high school that was doing all this drinking on the weekends?
1: Well, they were pretty fast. Fast, the fast, fast crowd. Fast they, they were, you know. Were you a leader or a follower? I was pretty much a follower. We thought we were the cool crowd, you know. We thought that uh, we had cool girlfriends. We had, because of our financial situations, we all had to work. In my family, uh-huh. and I worked at a steakhouse. Every day until after school, Uh during the week, until like 10 or 11 at night. And then get up and go to school. But that's how you earn money to buy liquor. Go on dates. So yeah, I never got in trouble in high school because of drinking. Uh And I never really got in trouble in college because of drugs or alcohol. You know, I mean, there were times when I could have been arrested, but God must have been looking over over me, you know, because I would I would be stopped by the police, and I would, there would be drugs in the car, mm-hmm. and for some reason they wouldn't find them, you know, yeah. or or I would be drunk and I would be stopped, and, and the cop gets another call and says, "Okay, we got to go," you know. I mean, wow. that kind of thing would happen, but I never got arrested, never got a DWI. My brother, the one who's still drinking, that's my twin brother, he has two DWIs. Mm. And so he just doesn't drive anymore. It's one way to not get a DUI is to not drive. That's right. So did you go away to school when you went to college? I did for the first year and uh, that's where we did a lot of drugs and but then I came back to Houston, graduated from the University of Houston nineteen seventy one. Huh. And it was that same year that Sue and I got married. That's right. You were college sweethearts, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, we knew each other. We got together. And in fact, got married in my last year in March. In fact, we just celebrated 51 years.
0: Oh, congratulations on that.
1: That's amazing. I consider that a huge miracle that we went through two sobering ups mm. and we're still married. You know, I still love that
0: woman. That's amazing. Very few people are blessed in that way, and you're you're definitely one of them, which is what's so important about you being such an active member of the program because people get to hear the message right there, and it's possible to get through two sobering ups and stay married over 50 years. Yeah, it takes work. A lot of work, I'm sure.
1: I'm sure. So you went from college to law school after yeah there was a period of 10 years where we lived in austin uh-huh and uh, i worked for in journalism for a while uh-huh. and then i came back to houston and went to law school mm-hmm. you know and i was i was a good boy in law school i didn't you know i i was focused yeah you know i wasn't drinking a lot you know i wasn't smoking weed a lot it was a, a real hard work
0: time Now, you and Sue got married in 71, she got sober in 86, Mm -hmm. so there was a period of time in there where both of your drinking overlapped. What was that period of time like for the two of you with regard to drinking itself?
1: Was it a big part of your life? It was. We, We had tons of friends in Austin and we did a lot of outdoor stuff and we would have you know, volleyball parties and with kegs and, you know, it was, yeah, lots of parties, you know, and and Sue was a real party girl. I could tell you some wild stories about her, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) She wouldn't appreciate
0: it. Well, she's probably already told them on the
1: podcast anyway, so don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I guess for the first 15 years of our marriage, we were drinking buddies so
0: that must have made it difficult for you whenever it was she decided to stop because you were, you were losing your
1: drinking buddy. Yeah, I was. It was like, like losing a pal. You know? it, it redefined our relationship. She was becoming responsible. She was cleaning up the past, uh-huh. you know, and I, I didn't know what to make of it at first. I was happy. I was, I was grateful, yeah, but I was a little bit threatened by it.
0: Were you keeping up with her? Were you guys on an even, uh, an even basis with regard to your drinking? Or had her alcohol consumption accelerated beyond
1: yours? Oh, it accelerated beyond mine. Yeah, I, In fact, now that I think about it, I don't think I could ever drink as much as she could <laughs> <laughs> until the end of my drinking. But she, was, she had a very hard time. And I can remember when I was in law school. I would, I would get a call from her and she said, ah, oh, you gotta come pick me up and I can't drive. And, and I'm studying for a final, you know, and, and I would go pick her up and she would be remorseful and, you know, and, and she got very angry towards the end of her drinking. Uh-huh. That was the, the way alcohol was affecting her. She was, she was angry a lot. I didn't know how to deal with her. Now, what was the family situation like at that point with regard to children? We have one child. She is 47 now. Um, but at the time, she was um, 12 or 13 when Sue got sober. Mm-hmm. I had graduated from law school in 1982. Mm-hmm. And so I started working. And so my the way it was working was I was taking Amy to school, you know, and then Sue was picking her up and bringing her home. and. And um, you know, I was getting Amy ready to go to school, and mm-hmm. you know, Sue never got arrested either, which is amazing, you know. But then she started going when she got sober in 1986. She started going to the Houston Western Club, which is no longer, yeah, but uh, you know, which was just within walking distance of our house, and so she would walk up there, mm-hmm. and she got hooked up with some some good women eventually got hooked up with Martha, who sponsored her until Martha's death uh, a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. How did the
0: rigors of first law school and then being a, a a newly practicing attorney, how did that play into your availability to Sue and your
1: daughter? Well, it took me away. I mean, I was working 12, 15 hours a day. Mm. You know, I was, you know, working hard, trying to get everything done in one day, trying to keep up. Yeah, it was a busy time. You know, it's it's a stressful job. You know, it takes up a lot of your attention. You know, I was, you know, I, I did get pulled away from the family. Yeah,
0: that must be tough in retrospect to think about the time that you weren't there. It is. Was that the kind of thing that ends up on an on amends list down the road? It does, you
1: know, and of course, when I made amends to our, our daughter, this is the way that went down. Was, you know how God makes situations available to you so you can make those amends? Yeah. Well, about a year after I got sober, and I was still working on all my amends, my brother died. My older brother. The older brother. Pancreatic cancer, and he was living in Bastrop. Mm -hmm. And so before he died, I I was spending a lot of time with him. I went up there and helped him settle his affairs and get all of his his papers in order and made amends to him. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember on one trip, Amy and I rode up together. It was the perfect time, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just realized that. Oh, now's the time I'm supposed to make amends. And so we talked about all the times I wasn't available. We talked about the embarrassing times for her, you know, that I would, she would be embarrassed to bring her friends around. Because by this time, Amy was, she was out of college herself. Right. Sue got sober when she was 12, so she would have remembered the two of
0: you drinking as she was a little kid growing up to age 12. Right. Mm -hmm. What was predominant in her mind with regard to who was the alcoholic in the family? Did did you
1: get a sense of that? Definitely her mother, you know, because by the time I got sober, she was out of the house. She had just gotten married. Uh You know, she was starting her own family. So, but it was good. You know, one of the best amends that I, one I felt good about with Mm -hmm. my daughter was to acknowledge, you know, what a great Person she is, yeah. You know, because I realized after I got sober that I was not one of these guys that would dole out, you know, uh, congratulations, you know, accomplishments. She was a great student. She was, she went all the way through college and became a veterinarian, mm-hmm. and has two great kids. And you know, I, I never patted her on the back enough, mm. you know. And so that was a kind of an amends that I was able to say, you know. I really love you and I need you to know how great I think you are, hmm. how accomplished I think you are and how how much I love you and I don't say it enough, hmm. you know. How did she react to that? Oh, she was said, oh, dad, you know, it was, but she accepted it, you know, with grace.
0: Did you notice a shift in your relationship after that?
1: I did. In what way? After I got sober, her children were infants then and, or the, one was an infant, one was a little bit older. I got started, I, I got to start, you know, keeping him while she was out, hmm. you know, by myself. You know, I got to pick him up from school. I got to, you know, start taking them to, you know, to sports practice. You know, I got to be involved. I got, I would get called and, and say, Dad, I got a flat tire, can you come help me? Mm-hmm. I got her calling me asking for advice, you know, about maybe a legal problem she had or, you know, and I realized I had been so quick to offer an opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, unasked. But when I stopped, you know, doing that, then people started asking me for, so what do you think about this? You know, it, it was weird. It was, you know, rather than pushing, I was just waiting. How did all that affect the the relationships with your grandchildren? The youngest was only one year old when I got sober. And the older one was four. So, you know, they've never said anything about it. I think, we had, and I've never really talked to them about my participation in Alcoholics Anonymous. They're still kids, though, right? Yeah, they're still kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, one's 18 now and one is 14 mm. but they know we don't drink mm-hmm. you know they they don't think that's weird yeah I guess I heard one you probably know Zach you mm-hmm. know he said yeah a lot of the children of sober alcoholics think that alcoholics are people that don't drink <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so if they know that much about it yeah of course my daughter is well aware my son-in-law is well aware and uh yeah, I think they have a, a healthy attitude about, about recovery. So, just rewinding a little bit, the years that overlap between
0: you and Sue drinking, you were drinking buddies, somewhere along the way she makes the decision that she has to stop drinking. Knowing that she was making this decision or, or seeing her go forth into AA, Seeing her get help, seeing her get hooked up with Martha and everything else. as your drinking buddy, I would imagine you knew you would lose
1: her as a drinking buddy if she did this. Did you in any way try to talk her out of it? No, I was so happy that she was sober, huh because alcohol was not good for her and it wasn't good for me. you know so after getting over my sort of discomfort with, with this change, you know I adjusted to it and i really respected. Her sobriety. How did it
0: affect your drinking once she got sober? Did you stay at the same level?
1: Do you accelerate, decelerate? It stayed pretty much at the same level all through my, I guess, through my 40s. And, I mean, I was working really hard, and uh, I started to make a lot of money. And I don't know when exactly it started accelerating, but like I said earlier, as I got into my 50s, Uh I noticed that it started getting worse. I was using it to deal with stress, you know. I was using it to deal with, to relax, you know. I call it winding it down, you know. But then I started having health problems. In my mid-50s, I started having heart problems like palpitations or arrhythmia? Yeah, I started having that and I started, I consulted a cardiologist and, and eventually I ended up having uh, open-heart surgery, mm. which I later learned, you know, was partly related to my drinking. In what ways? Well, alcohol's action on the heart is not a good one. It, uh, it's not good for the arteries, you know excessive drinking and and the hangovers that come with it or a stress on the heart. Mm -hmm. And you combine that with with blockage, you know, and it's just a recipe for disaster. Did you actually have a heart attack? I didn't have a heart attack. I was having severe chest pains, Mm. and I went in for a a stint, and um, my cardiologist discovered that I needed surgery that day right then. So I had the surgery, triple bypass, and when I got sober a couple of years later, you know, we talked about it. My cardiologist, and I, he said, yeah, that, that drinker, you never told me the truth. He always said you only drank two drinks a day, mm. you know, like we all do. So that was a long recovery from heart surgery. And drinking with that, I, I, I kept on drinking. Even during your convalescence? Especially during my convalescence, because with with heart surgery, what they don't tell you is that there is a depression that comes with it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so I I started drinking more heavily to deal with that. And then the year after I had my heart surgery, I had prostate cancer surgery. Mm. So now I've, I've got two things to pity myself about. And so I dealt with that by drinking more.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, Check out my Big Book Podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first-edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. What'd you do about the physical pain from the heart surgery and the prostate? Was it all alcohol relief for the pain, or or did you mix in uh, any kind of narcotics or or drugs?
1: My cardiologist wasn't big on pain medications, so so it was just alcohol. Pills were never my deal. Fortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you had the open heart surgery, and then you had prostate surgery the next year. Mm-hmm. And this was how long before you came in? Two years. That two years was
1: hell. So were you able to work
0: during that time, or what was going on with that?
1: Yeah, I was able to work, but I was really um, not doing very well. And I you know, consciously started taking fewer clients. That was when I, the everyday drinking started. The drinking in the morning started about a year before I came in. What was behind the drinking in the morning and the and the regular or constant drinking? What was the feeling or thoughts behind that? Well, I was shaking in the morning. I had to drink in order to for my hands to calm down, so I could use the the type you know the keyboard hmm. or use the telephone. It was uh, to calm my nerves. When I read Doctor Bob's nightmare in the big book. I could relate to what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. I had to drink, you know, to calm my nerves. And then I I found that the alcohol allowed me to function. It became like normal Mm. for me to be drinking. Um, And there were mornings when I would get up and start going to the office and just turn around and come back. You know, I just couldn't do it, You couldn't do it. And so I saw a psychologist about that time. Mm -hmm. I just felt lost. And I, the way I described it then is just I, I just lost my way. I don't know, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. Hmm. You know, but I still hadn't admitted that the alcohol was the problem. I thought it was just a depression. So Sue was taking care of you during this time. I assume. she was.
0: What was she saying to you at that time, knowing what she knew about the probable causes for your heart problems, and knowing that you were drinking much more and on a daily basis?
1: I think she focused more on the recovery from the two surgeries Mm -hmm. than on the alcohol consumption. Because I think at the same time that I was drinking more. I was hiding it more. Mm. I would have a glass of vodka, and I would, uh, I would pretend like it was water. Was she fooled by that, by the way? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it, in any event, she wasn't saying anything about it because because of my physical condition. Mm. You know, there was a lot of rehab you know, that I had to go through to get back strength. Of course, I milked that. Mm-hmm. So it just accelerated from there, man. It was It was like, you know a jetliner falling out of the sky. It was just, you know, straight down. So you went to the psychologist. What did the psych- psychologist say to you? Well, I didn't own up to that it was an alcohol problem. There was a glimmer of, of thought in my mind that this might be related to alcohol. but. At the same time, my cardiologist had referred me to, to, to a neurologist because I was having uh, dizziness, mm-hmm. it, which was really related to the alcohol. I was having, you know, balance problems related to the alcohol. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, but all of this was just my version of complete denial about what my condition was and what it was related to so when the after the neurologist ran all this battery of tests, and the result was that it's alcohol abuse and I went, I don't put that in my chart, you know i that was I was upset about it, so you received the alcoholic diagnosis, yeah, related to alcohol abuse and and still, when I came back to my cardiologist, uh, he just said, "Well, it looks like you're going to have to cut back, you know and he wasn't really up to date on, on alcoholism, mm-hmm. but he said, you cannot drink more than two drinks a day. And I said, okay, okay. So it was shortly after that that I, I came in. What were the final days like? My last binge started on Thanksgiving in 2008. I don't remember much between Thanksgiving and December 7th. It was about... 10 days or two weeks. I'd have to look back at the calendar. Mm -hmm. All I remember is just, you know, finally coming to this awareness that I had this problem, not knowing what to do about it, knowing that Alcoholics Anonymous works for people because I'd seen it work in Sue, not wanting to give up the alcohol. And so just drinking more and more to blot that out. Mm -hmm. So it all came to a head that Sunday, December 7th, when, uh, it was just like, it was such a gift. You know, that moment of clarity we get, uh-huh. you know, I was sitting on my back porch, I had a cup of coffee and a glass of vodka. Hmm. And I suddenly snapped to, you know, I can't live like this. You know, this is wrong. You know, this is not normal. So that hit you for the first time. That way, that was my bottom. That was my moment of clarity. That was my gift from God. Hmm. His message to me Dale, stop this. So you had gotten an
0: an empirical message from a neurologist who says you really need to stop. Mm -hmm. And then you get permission from the cardiologist to cut back. And then you have this spiritual kick in the pants sitting on your back porch. How is it that the empirical, you you know, you're you're a pretty smart guy. How is it that the empirical
1: advice you were given didn't do it? Why did you have to wait for the spiritual? Wow, that's a really good question. It's because the empirical you can deny, Mm. the spiritual you cannot, Mm -hmm. the truth of that spiritual moment where it's just made completely plain to you, you know, that you've been given every bit of information and, you know, God says, stop, Mm. I'll help you. You know, Sue had given me the name of three men to uh, talk to Mm -hmm. in this period of time, before Thanksgiving and, and around that time, you know, you need to take a look at your drinking. I don't want to watch you die. I want to do something about it. Call one of these men. And um, and one of them turned out to be my sponsor, Larry, Larry B. Yeah. One of them was John and one of them was Jack. Three heavyweights. Yeah. And so I called all three of them and uh, Jack was the only one that answered the phone. Jack said, meet me up at Holy Name. Mm-hmm. It's, it's six o'clock tonight. Mm -hmm. and so we came to that meeting and I remember Bob G. was uh, leading that meeting and I think you were there. Mm -hmm. I think John N. was chairing that meeting I still remember it so vividly don't remember a lot but uh... I do remember
0: it and I remember when I found out your last name and I put two and two together because I knew she'd gotten sober a long time ago and then here you were and I guess somewhere along the way I must have assumed about her spouse and I'm sure I met you prior to then but I don't have a whole lot of recall about it, but I guess I just assumed that because she was sober, she would probably have a sober husband, which is why I was surprised whenever it was I learned that you were her husband. Mm-hmm. What were the first meetings like for you? You'd had this God moment, this this awareness, this spiritual realization. What were the
1: early meetings and what was your early AA like? Well, I'll tell you that one significant thing happened to me the very next day, um, After that first meeting, I had met Jack D, and Jack D said, well, you got to come tomorrow night. So here I am uh, the following Monday, and I'm feeling really ragged, you know, feeling very electric. Were you detoxing? I was detoxing. I got in the car that night to go to that 8 o'clock meeting, and uh, on the way to, to that meeting, I had an accident. I had a seizure, a withdrawal seizure. And all I remember is that uh, I kind of got lost, I got disoriented, and next thing I know, I'm being shoved into the back of an ambulance. Mm. And um, I had run into a guy in a Land Rover. Mm -hmm. My car had run up against a telephone post, and, and the guy that I ran into had found a piece of pipe and broke the window so he could turn the car off. I, I learned this later by talking to him.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Of course my insurance paid for, for everything. But I just remember, you know, after the release from that seizure and being shoved into the back of that ambulance, I had this wonderful feeling that everything was gonna be okay. Hmm. And it it convinced me beyond all doubt that my alcohol problem was so serious that I could never drink again. You know, I mean, I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't had that seizure. I wonder if I'd have tried to blow it off and say, oh, my drinking wasn't that bad. Yeah. I'm not capable of drinking like that to where I would become so addicted that I would have a seizure when I quit drinking.
0: Is that what they realized at that point? I mean, the seizure was the
1: cause of the accident.
0: Yes. Because uh-huh. you must have still been in a condition that would suggest that,
1: I yeah. guess. Yeah, and I remember <laughs> about a week later, my insurance company called me to take a statement from me. Uh huh. Insurance adjuster is kind of hard nosed, and, and I was straight up, you know. I called Larry, and I'd already got a sponsor. I called him, I said, I don't know what to tell him. And, and Larry said, Well, just tell him the truth, you know. So I told the adjuster, I'm an alcoholic. And I had a seizure related to a withdrawal from alcohol.
0: Mm.
1: And there was a silence on the phone. And, uh, and then the insurance adjuster said, well, I'm going to turn the recorder off. He said, I'm, I'm an Al-Anon, and um, I'm happy for you that you're getting sober. And I, ho- I wish you well, and we're going to pay this claim. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Another God thing. Know. You know? <laughs> what are the odds of that? No, yeah. Uh, I thought they were going to deny the claim. It was going to cost me a bunch of money. Just a drunk that ran into somebody. And Did you get cited? No. So it, it was a, it was an accident that they could
0: have could have gone either way. But turns out the guy was an alien. Yeah, he
1: said I, I'm going to rule that this is an act of God, and so we're going to go ahead and pay this. And it was an act of God. Wasn't it, it was an act of God. God, that's a that's an amazing story. So uh, all this is happening when you're within your, within your first, first week of sobriety. Week of sobriety. And the only time I felt safe in that first 30 days was when I was in a meeting or when I was reading the big book or when I was talking to Larry. What was the rest of your detoxing like? Well, my doctor put me on a short term of Librium Mm. to kind of smooth me out, you know. And that lasted, you know, a week or so. And, you know, by then, you know, the detoxing was pretty well over. So the fog started to fog lift? Fog started to point. lift and I remember Sue was on the phone to Martha and, and they were saying, well maybe we should taper him off, maybe get get some beer and and I, and I refused it. I said, no, I don't want any. Good thing. I don't want to taper off. You know, I want to just be stopped. Wow. And so I remember talking to Martha, talking to Sue a lot. She was so encouraging. You know, and she would go with me to meetings and... But eventually she said, you're going to have to find your own meetings, you know. And, you know, you need to find your crowd. I, I started, I was voraciously reading all the AA literature. Mm-hmm. And I read uh, the book that Bill read when he, was, when he was in the hospital, you know, William James, the variety of religious experience. And there's he devotes three chapters to um, the conversion experience. Mm -hmm. So I started getting interested in, well, how does this happen? And you know, how do people connect with God? And and so that's kind of started the spiritual part of my journey, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, I was going to meetings every day, you know, I think for the first almost 10 years, I was going to a meeting every day. I still go to like five meetings a week. Yeah. That's amazing. And the thing I remember
0: about you in the early days was that I don't think you were doing the coffee yet. I think there, Jim, D and one or two other people were doing the coffee. But you've been doing the coffee in that Sunday night meeting now for well over 10 years, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I think 12 years I think I've been doing it.
0: You know, I've known, I've, I've interviewed other people and certainly have known lots of people over the years that that service commitment was really instrumental
1: in their long-term recovery. No doubt. I mean, when I started doing the coffee, my life started getting better. You know, it started being, this is great to do something for somebody else. You know, this is wonderful. You know, and about that same time, I started sponsoring guys. So you had already worked the steps by that point. Yes. How long did it take you to get through the steps? I got through all the steps, and probably in the first six months. Wow! And I think, well, I was 59 when I came in, and I was anxious to get going. You mm. know, I, I, you know, I felt like, well, if I was 20, maybe I would take five years to do this. You know? Yeah, but right, <laughs> right, right. I'm 59, <laughs> you know, so. But I really got interested in in being sober. I got, yeah. I got happy about being sober. I got. You know, I found joy in in the meetings. I felt safe in the meetings. I felt like I was learning more about me.
0: Yeah, I could definitely sense the change in humility in the, the first number of years, especially when you started doing the coffee. I was wondering, you mentioned about sponsees, looking at their sobriety and the work that they're doing sponsoring other people.
1: What part of your sobriety do you see most reflected in them? Well, it has to be the commitment to service, you know. It has to be the, the joy and the acceleration in your program that you get from working with others. I mean, your, your program really comes alive when you start passing it on, I mm. learned. You know, it, it, like it, it takes on its, a life of its own, you know, and, it, and you see it being perpetuated and carried on down the line, another link in the chain. Is that why I see so many
0: of your guys serving coffee over the years?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. I'm, like, I'm in a
0: management position now. <laughs> it's always so great to see those guys doing it. They're just stepping right up to it. So, I've had a couple of other people, and we won't name them by name, but I've had a, a few of your sponsees actually on the podcast. Yes, so and, I, a um, about that. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> that, that's why I'm doing this now, okay? Because we're coming. I knew I was going to interview you, but. Uh, uh, all in good time. But I wondered because I'm thinking about a couple of the guys who I know who you sponsor now, and you and I both know who they are, who had been sponsored and then went out and slipped and came back, and it turns out that their sobriety didn't really start sticking until you started sponsoring them. What do you think you were doing or saying to them that was making a bigger, a big difference in them finally being able to get sober?
1: You know, I think that they were just ready I don't look at it as, as anything more than explaining the program as I understand it, telling my experience with the program, what I've learned, mm-hmm. and God's really doing the work. You know, I just get to kind of see it happen, you know, and there is an energy, I think, between two people. You know, if you connect with the guy that you're taking through the steps and you're really communicating with him, and you're really explaining the principles and the the different parts of the steps. Mm-hmm. Explaining, you know, well, this is the third step. We're talking about control, acceptance, you know. You, you kind of have a lesson plan. You know, I took it seriously when I started sponsoring guys. And, you know, it was important to me to learn enough about the program so I could pass it on. I mean, the real program, not me. But what the program says about staying sober.
0: Yeah, that's the legacy part of the program. Yeah.
1: Now, I know
0: that you engage in a lot of extracurricular activities with some of the guys that you sponsor. I know you're you're an avid uh, golfer. To what extent did that solidify or enhance your relationship with the guys that you sponsor? And to what degree do you think that had an influence on their enthusiasm for AA and their willingness to be of more service?
1: Well, you know, it's it's good to get to know your guys really well and to show them that, you you know, there's life after alcohol and that you can play around to golf and, and not drink a fifth of Jack Daniels, and, you know. <laughs> what I found with my own sponsor is that if I'm in touch with him a lot, mm-hmm. I may not need to talk with him every day about something that's bothering me, but that familiarity... Makes it easier for me to say, "Oh, Larry. By the way, I need to talk to you about something. You know, something that's bothering me." And I think if you don't talk to your sponsor a lot, mm-hmm. then it makes it more difficult to pick up that phone and said, "You know, I'm really scared about this, or I'm really angry about this." So I don't know. There's a lot of camaraderie in, with some of the guys I sponsor and. Uh, Some of the guys don't call that much. Yeah. Everybody's different. Yeah, I know it's that way for me, too. I sponsored a lot of guys
0: over the years, some of whom have become closer personal friends, and some still are in that sponsor-sponsee type relationship. And that's fine. There's uh, there's a mixture of all kinds. One of the things I find most gratifying about watching you stay sober is seeing what effect it's had on Larry over the years. Mm. I've noticed since I first met Larry, right when he first came in, that sponsoring you, I think, took his participation in AA and his program to the next level. Mm -hmm. So there's something really special and of high quality to the way you guys relate to each other that I think has made a big, big difference in his life. I think sometimes we overlook the fact that we are definitely having an influence on someone else who is actually helping us, but it helps them as they help Mm -hmm. us. And Larry is, uh, he's a really good, good man, oh. good, good-hearted good soul. Past. So early on, you get these sponsees, you're going to a lot of meetings. What sort of things have happened during your sobriety over the past 13 years that were milestones or were momentous occasions or calamitous situations where your
1: being sober and a member of AA made a big difference? Well, hmm. I think when my brother died. That was a big thing to get through. How long were you sober at that time? A year. And I count that as, as just about the only time that I was in a panic enough to where I might have picked up a drink. Mm. I was scared, you know, I was I didn't know what to do. I, he didn't get the diagnosis until three weeks before he died. And it was pancreatic cancer? Yeah. And that's a pretty swift moving... Died 17 days later. Oh my God. Yeah. But the odd thing that happened then was that I had signed up to be a contact person for uh, the lawyer's assistant program with state of Texas, State Bar. Uh-huh. And that day that I was in such a panic, I get a call from a guy that's been referred by t And he's an alcoholic and, you know, he needs some help. Hmm. You know, that's another God
0: thing. What was your initial reaction to that? Did you see the gift in that call immediately?
1: Immediately. The more evidence I get of God acting in my life, the more convinced I am that, you know, there's a plan out there that's got me in mind and that God's, you know, wants to do good for me. Wow. So that pulled you through that situation. It got you out of your own head, right? It got me out of it immediately.
0: So you could be of service to others. I know that Sue has faced some challenges over the last number of years, and and can you can you talk to that a little bit?
1: Sue got sick with breast cancer a couple of years ago, and uh, you know that was a tough time for both of us. Mm. Lots of fear, lots of you know, uh, and plus on top of that we got the pandemic that's going on. Right. You know, so we were isolated, and and, uh, and yet she was still having to go and and she was very weak and very sick, you know, with the chemo. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I I had doubts about whether I was going to be able to give the kind of service that she needed, you know. What, did I have it in me to, mm. you know, to be helpful? That must have been a really scary prospect to not know that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, this was a test, you know. Uh- <laughs> That's the way I saw it. Yeah. I said, am I man enough and big enough and sober enough and Mm. and uh, selfless enough, you know, to be of help. And so I started learning how to cook, you know, Mm. and I started learning how to, you know. My work has been slowly, as you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been trying to retire. And so, you know, I was able to take her to the hospital, you know, and and then they said, okay, you can't come into the hospital anymore. So while she was in there, I would have to wait out and I would find places to wait. Mm Mm-hmm thought I would, you know, this is going to make me impatient and I'm going to be a baby about this. But I wasn't. I surprised myself. But it's because of this program. You were still going to meetings all the time? All the time. Of course, at that time, there was
0: a lot of Zoom meetings. What have you noticed about the times when you've had those challenges? What have you noticed about the way AA kind of gathers around the man
1: who needs support? What was that like for you? Oh, it was, I was just amazed about, you know, how all the men and In my life, uh, you know, were supportive. Mm -hmm. You know, they would call, they would bring food by. Sue's friends and Mm -hmm. and her program were right there with Mm her. This fellowship
0: is amazing. You know, sometimes we're not the best judges of the, the quality of our own programs, mm-hmm. but seeing how other people around us, sponsees, friends, members of meetings, react at times when we need it the most. I've had that occur through some other very, very difficult times. The people were there because I was there. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you want people to care about you, obviously you've got to be around for mm-hmm. them to care about. It doesn't surprise me at all that the the men gathered around you, the women gathered around Sue, and you both pulled through it. In fact, I interviewed her when she was on the better end of her Mm -hmm. convalescence, and it it was a real blessing to be able to do that. Right. So you got through that situation. Have there been any other things that have occurred, let's say some really good things that happened or other things within that period of sobriety?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. When Sue was sick, you know, there was, I had a friend, well, I have a friend within the program Mm -hmm. whose wife was going through the same thing. And he told me that there are going to be many angels that come out of this that you are not aware of right now, Mm -hmm. you know, which turned out to be true. The men that I talked about, the women. But not only that, some of the the, uh, women at the hospital Mm Mm-hmm. When we were allowed, both of us to go in, I I was able to see this wonderful woman that was, she was in treatment also, but she was further along, and she was just on follow-up, and she came and sat with Sue and and comforted her, and I mean, it was just like, I mean, it made all the difference in the world. You know, you see the good in people coming out, you know, the caring about other people coming out, you know, humanity coming out. The love coming out yeah
0: that's the bottom line it's the love and the, the awareness that a power greater than ourselves is supplying that love for us unconditionally and without uh without haste hmm. do you ever reflect on the years that you could have
1: been sober that you weren't yeah i mean i wish i'd have gotten sober earlier and discovered this way alive but you know i'm just grateful for the life i got now yeah
0: You know, I was just curious, what is there that you might have heard at that time that might have changed your your trajectory? Hmm. Knowing what you know now about the program and about all the gifts. So this is Dale being able to go back and talk to Dale from yesteryear.
1: What would I tell him? Yeah, I would tell him, you know, you don't commit forever. Mm -hmm. Just take a look at this, you know the Dale of 50 years old, you know, I could say, you might feel better. Don't You don't have to do it forever. Just do it for today. Mm-hmm. You know, see what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, let me talk to you about it. Hmm. You know, and I wonder if I would be open-minded enough to, you know, to say, all right, I'll give it a shot or whether I would, you know, treat him like a, you know, a Bible salesman and, and slam the door.
0: Well, it sounds like the difference between talking to somebody about AA as being a one day at a time thing as opposed to you come into AA and you never drink again. That's too big. I mean, That is too big. Who can get their head around that? But just like what you just said when you you would have talked to that Dale and said, "Why don't you give it a try? You don't have to do it forever." Those are the kind of messages that if they're hearing that instead of you've got to stop drinking for good. Yeah. That might get through, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what might get through. I mean, I didn't know you could do it one day at a time. I thought it had to be you quit and you never go back and you're miserable for the rest of your life, you mm-hmm. know. I mean that's the way I thought about it. When when you're not in AA and you're not sober and the thought of getting sober and it being a permanent thing yeah. Is, like you say, it's more than you can put your head around.
0: Right, that idea of I will never have fun in my life ever again is a lot more difficult to handle than if I try it tomorrow and it really sucks, I can always go back to drinking.
1: Yeah, you can always do it.
0: Although we we don't tend to go after people like that, but even in the big book there's there's lots of room for that, I've I've known people who felt like they justified their slipping to what it said in the big book. The big book gave me permission to do this because it says in there, you know, if you're, if you're doubtful, try some controlled drinking. Well, there's the permission to go back out and, you know, or not come in to begin with. Yeah. But the fact that you were able to realize that now and even though you can't go back to those years, that same message is never wasted on the next guy who walks through the door. Huh? Huh.
1: Yeah, how do you convince a guy that doesn't think he's got a problem, has a problem? You know, it's it's impossible, that's why we have to we have to feel the pain before we can stop. Well, it astounds me at how fast the last
0: 13 years have gone by. It seems like a blink of the eye. Me too. And I I feel so blessed to have been part of the journey with you and also with Sue in the earlier years that I saw her all the time. But now knowing the gifts that you're able to bring to this program by your very presence in the meetings. Mm-hmm. And I see how men love you and treat you with a lot of respect and they honor your uh, participation in the program. I certainly do. I love you, and you're one of my favorite people. I love you too, Alan. I, I can't tell you how glad I am that you were able to do this today. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Is there anything in closing that you'd like to just kind of put out there to the universe of Alcoholics Anonymous?
1: It's nothing else. You know, it's it's that, um, that I'm grateful for this way of life. Mm. Um, it's not something I ever expected. Mm-hmm. It's a big surprise to me. You know that that life is so good after being on that spot where you think that this is horrible. Life is horrible, and then you die. You know, it's it's like I never imagined that I could have the kind of joy and happiness and peace and contentment uh, that I have. You know, and, and that my relationship with with Sue is is still strong. It's amazing. It is. I'm not bored with life anymore. Serious end of the road drinking, that's what life is, it's boring. Yeah. It's not anymore. That's great, well you keep up that enthusiasm and that good
0: cheer and uh, you can stay sober another day, as will I. This very interview today helped me stay sober. We'll go back into the retreat this afternoon. I've always told people, that going to an AA 12 step retreat is like being able to live inside of AA for 36 to 40 hours. Mm-hmm. You, you get to have your meals with other people, you stay on the same property, You you go to meeting after meeting, and by the end of the weekend you've gotten a whole lot of AA into your life at once. And I see how some of these young guys are really soaking this up. And it's always so gratifying to see it. And I know you've been involved in the administration and the setting up. And so I I just really honor you for that kind of commitment as well. It means a lot. Thank you, Howard. Well, thanks, Dale. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. You bet. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for yet another captivating interview in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series. I want to thank Dale C. for sharing his story, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others about it? And please leave us a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also to contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.